The sermon text today is coming out of Revelation 21, 1 through 8. And when you find it, please stand. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the hill from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his inheritance, I mean his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithfulness, and the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idols, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and suffer, which is the second death. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open it up before us and for being able to come to you in prayer and ask for understanding. Lord, you said if we need wisdom to ask of you and you give it. Father, we need wisdom uh, to live in this hour. Lord, we need understanding to rightly apply Your Word to our own situations. Lord, to avoid despair, to fulfill the purpose that You have appointed us to. Lord, we need the power of Your Spirit enabling us and enlightening us to Your ways and Your Word. Do it, we pray, for Your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, Amen. We've been learning in Sunday school, haven't we, that God keeps His promises, right? So, um, I put a title on this in the bulletin. Uh, there's different ways you could word it, really, but... Um, a promise fulfilled, or you may want to put a promise kept. Either way is good, um, because that's what I'm going to be talking about. A promise kept. God fulfills His Word. And one reason this is really, well, that's always significant, but, but in terms of our, our study here and, and even what we're talking about in Sunday school, um, what we're seeing in the, the latter parts of the book of Revelation. I mean, we're in chapter 21 now. There's only one more chapter to go. Um, and Lord willing, what, I, what I'm thinking is uh, next Sunday night we'll, we'll finish. I'll uh, we have this morning, next Sunday morning, and next Sunday night, and uh, probably finish the book of Revelation. Well, what we're seeing um, on this end is the fulfillment of the promises that God has been making all the way through the book, and I'm talking about the Bible, 
<laughs> so, so you go, you go back to Genesis 1 and this, this meditative, meta narrative that we've been talking about in Sunday school. There's the beginning. Uh, appropriately, because that's what Genesis means, right? Beginnings. So there's the beginning. Um, and the beginning of what? The beginning of the story. The beginning of the story. God created all things. And He made man in His own image, in His own likeness. And He put us here for a, for a reason. He put us here to glorify Him. Um, if you think of, of man, and when I say man, I'm, I'm talking about um, in, the, in, the, in the sense that the Bible uses the term there. So, so you can include women. Um, God created man in his own image. Genesis tells us in his own image he created them, male and female. Um, so um, he put man here to reflect his glory. So, so if you think of man, men and women as like little mirrors that reflect the image of God. That's, that's why God created us, to reflect His image. Um, so, you, for example, to, to, to reflect His character. You, you know, a lot of times people ponder, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And, of course, there are several things that it means, and I don't know that we could, or I certainly don't know that I could uh, think of all of them. But for one thing, it means that we are moral creatures. You know, that we, we, we understand right and wrong. Um, <clears throat> we are emotional creatures. You know, you read in the Bible of God getting angry or God being happy or uh, something like that. The Holy Spirit being grieved. Well, we're familiar with those emotions, aren't we? Um, except that we, we, we sin in our emotions. God never sins. But we are in that way made like God, and we don't mirror it. Per- we don't mirror Him perfectly, but we do in those ways um, have some semblance to the character of God. Now, just think about attributes like His goodness, His faithfulness, His long suffering, His grace that we talk so much about. I mean, these, these are all aspects of His character, who God is, and we're we're put here to. Mirror those things. And we're supposed to do it accurately. Now, what happened, of course, you know the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Um, they rebelled against God. And so sin comes into the picture. So, so we're created in the image of God, put here to glorify God. That is, He, he put these little reflectors of His glory in the earth, and, and then He gives this command, now go and be fruitful and multiply. So the idea is to fill the earth with the glory of God. Little reflections of his glory. But then man rebels and is alienated from God. And we saw recently in our Sunday school lesson that even there, right off the bat, when man sins, in Genesis, you can go back and read the Genesis 3 account, when man sins, God immediately, he, he does bring judgment, he does bring curse upon the ground and upon the snake and upon the woman, but at the same time he does that, he comes immediately with a word of hope, a word of promise. When he's cursing the snake, he talks about the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, right? 
So there's already this glimmer of hope. This, you know, the serpent was the one that deceived Eve, and now he's here. God is telling Adam and Eve, um, "There's there's going to come one from from you, from your loins, your seed, who will crush the serpent." And then, as you move further into the biblical text, you you um, we keep getting a little more light on that, and a little more light on that, and we find that God's desire and His intention is to restore, in some sense, what He had originally created. Now, let's think about that for a minute. What was the case? What what you need? Fans? Uh, they're, up, they're up there. You just got to hit the right one. Unless they're turned off. They might be turned off at the individual fan. All right, so um, um, what they had in the beginning, what, what, the way that God originally created things was that He had fellowship with man in the Garden of Eden, right? And what, what happened when sin came into the picture? Well, that fellowship was broken. So man was alienated from God. You, you go from this um, picture of paradise in Genesis 1 and 2, um, where you have man in the garden, man created in the image and likeness of God, and then existing in the garden, in the very presence of God, communication unhindered between God and man. You know, there, the, the, some of the ways it's described is God is walking in, uh, in the garden in the cool of the day, that kind of thing. There's just intimate fellowship, intimate relationship. But when man sins, that is, that is disrupted. That fellowship is broken. And man is alienated. He's put out of the garden. So in these promises of hope that we, we see, first in Genesis 3 and then throughout um, the rest of the Old Testament, and I'll, I'll give you some examples in a little bit. Um, David read one earlier in Isaiah 11. Um, but in these, in these um, instances of uh, of hope, where God is giving words of hope, the idea is a restoration of that kind of fellowship. Or to say it another way, what you've got in the Garden of Eden is man living in the presence of God. And God in the presence of man, because He comes right into the Garden. The voice of the Lord comes and, and speaks to Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 3, when they sin, they're put out of the garden. And so that is no longer the case. Now there's alienation. And through the rest of the Bible, that is the state of everyone who is born into the world. That is, we come into this world alienated from God. And apart from salvation through Jesus Christ, I mean, that's, that's where we would stay. We come into this world alienated from God. And so these promises are given throughout the Scripture that God will once again dwell among His people. Now, um, David read... In fact, I'm going to look at that again. Uh, Isaiah 11. And I'm going to give you a couple of... References here. Go there first. Isaiah 11, 
Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Well, who is that? That's talking about Jesus, right? Remember back in chapter 4 when John couldn't find, in chapter 4 of Revelation, when John couldn't find anybody worthy to, uh, well, not necessarily John, but nobody could be found worthy to open the book, uh, the scroll that that the God was holding in his hand. And then this voice comes, um, weep not. For the, uh, the, the root of Jesse, um, the, the line of the tribe of Judah, is worthy. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall, test, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall judge by what his eyes see or decide. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. See what Isaiah is doing here is is, uh, what the Lord is doing through Isaiah. Speaking of a day when things are set right. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And we saw that in chapter 19, didn't we? Um, The sword proceeding from his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then he goes on to talk about um, the, the peaceful situation of that time. This is where we, we get the imagery of wolf shall dwell with a lamb in verse 6. And a leopard with a young goat. And verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze together. Um, in verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, uh, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And then in verse 9, they shall, no, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So back in Genesis, you know, God makes man in his own image, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And then um, here, and then also in, in Habakkuk, virtually the same wording in Habakkuk, um, the prophecy is given that, that, that is gonna, there is coming a day that that is going to happen. The earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let me give you another one here before we go back to uh, Revelation. Look at um, Isaiah 65. Verse 25, similar imagery here. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust, the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Uh, so again, he's speaking of a time of, of peace, a time when, uh, when righteousness rules. When will that be? Well, let me, let me bring in another uh, reference here. Go, turn all the way back to Leviticus chapter 26. And let's look at verses 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord. Your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves, 
and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Now, here, the Lord is promising blessing to the children of Israel um, if they will obey and keep His covenant. Obey His word, keep His covenant. And He says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, that is, if you do right, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. So, so notice the heart of that. I will, I will make my dwelling among you, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. But again, you, you read through the Old Testament, and you find that that never quite happens, not fully. Um, you know, the section we're in in Sunday school now, we're talking about the partial fulfillment, the partial kingdom. And so, God did set Israel apart as a nation, set apart for His own glory. And He did manifest His presence among them. He had them first build the tabernacle, which was a big tent um, where um, they put the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence was manifest in a unique way. And there He said, you know, I will meet with you, you'll meet with me. And, and Moses would go and talk with God. And then later, in the time of uh, uh, David and Solomon, actually Solomon built the temple, but God put it on David's heart to build a, a, a permanent structure, the temple in Jerusalem. And then that was done by his son Solomon. And the temple was built in Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant was put there representing the, uh, the, the very presence of God. So in those cases, in the, in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, what is represented there is God dwelling among His people. As their God, and He is, and they are His people. But again, it never fully comes to uh, to pass to the to the to the like full fruition because they continually rebel, and so you keep getting promises like the one that we just read in Isaiah a few moments ago, where God says, "Look, I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring this." to pass at one point. And there's going to be peace in my holy mountain and righteousness will reign. Now, all that to say this. God keeps His Word. And what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, is the fulfillment of that promise. God has kept His promise to make a people for Himself delivering us from our rebellion and bringing us into right relationship to Himself. So John says in verse 1, Revelation 21, 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, let me say this. It starts with the word then there. I've said several times, we're seeing a lot of repetition here, or recapitulation. And so a lot of times when you see that word, I don't, I don't think it necessarily means that we are to think chronologically like this happened, then this happened. A lot of times it's just moving. Um, in, in, it's more like saying I saw this vision, then I saw this vision, but the visions may have been talking about the very same thing. We've seen that repeatedly. This time I think we are to think chronologically. In other words, what you've got in chapter 20 that we talked about last week is the final judgment. 
Even the final judgment of Satan, he's cast into the lake of fire. And then verse 1 here says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I think this is chronological. Um, we had the final judgment in chapter 20. And then what comes after the final judgment in chapter 21 and 22. So what we're looking at here is what we can think of as the, the eternal state. In other words, what lies in store for us in eternity as believers, as those who believe on Jesus Christ. In fact, he's going to talk about believers and non-believers. But the primary focus is on reward for the faithful, the overcomers. So what does John see? Now that the judgment is done, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So John sees a new order. New creation. And by the way, I want you to notice how similar the language is here. And it's not by accident, of course. Think think with me for a minute. Um about 2 Corinthians 5.17, which, which we usually apply to ourselves individually. I'm not 100% convinced that's entirely what it means, but I think it's probably okay to take it that way. But it, that just may not be what it's limited to. But here's what it says. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation, right? And then Paul goes on to say, old things... Or pass away, behold, all things become new. Now, at the beginning of that, he's obviously talking about individual salvation. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. But then the rest of that, old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. We, we, we tend to apply that to our salvation experience as well. Just, I mean, just thinking in terms of the individual. Well, um, the old man is dead, now the new man lies, which that's certainly true. But I think what Paul may be doing there is just bringing our salvation into the big picture. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passing away. All things become new. I mean, that's what's happening with the whole order of things. The whole cosmos. All of creation. And everybody who is in Christ will participate in the new order that God is bringing about. Now, again, think about that passage. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Notice how similar the language is here when he's talking about um, the things that he's seeing following the judgment. I saw a new heaven. Here's here's your new creation. New heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had what? Pass away. Remember what Paul says in Corinthians? Old things pass away. All things become new. And the sea was no more. That's part of what's passed away. And I saw the holy city. Verse 2. New Jerusalem. New creation. Coming down out, out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have what? Passed away, right? And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. So Paul says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. Well, and that is what is taking place here. It's sort of a new birth for all of creation. It is a new birth. It's not in the same way that we are are born again by the Spirit of God. But it is the Spirit of God um, recreating new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, right? And old things pass away. Now, let's just think about some of those things for a minute. Again, he says in verse 5, all things um, are being made new. What's new? New heaven, new earth. So again, a new, a new cosmos. Sometimes we say the universe, but I don't think that's really making it big enough. I mean, they, they talk about multiple universes now. Uh, so we've got to include all of them, however many there are. Um, New heavens and new earth. And then he says in verse 2, he saw a new Jerusalem. Um, some people want to take that as a literal city. I don't think so. And I'll, I'll be able to explain more about why um, the further we get into chapter 21 and chapter 22. Um, but he does say clearly in chapter 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, well, when you look down into verse 9, the angel says to John about halfway through the verse, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So in other words, the new Jerusalem in verse 2 is the church, it is the bride of Christ. New creation. All of us newly created, like Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5:17. So you got new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ, and the former things he said have passed away. So verse 1 he says the 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 heaven and the earth, that is the old ones have passed away. If uh if we have time, I may run out of time, but if we have time, I'll We'll, we'll look at what Peter has to say about that in Second Peter. <clears throat> the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And then he goes on to list some things that he says in verse 4 are no more. No more. In other words, these are part of the things that have passed away. Some of it symbolic, some of it not. The sea passed away. Well, when we get over into chapter 22, we're going to see that there is a, a, a river that is spoken about. Again, I think it's symbolism, but nevertheless, it, it speaks about water. Um, so I, so I, I don't think the idea here, when he says the sea is no more, he's probably not meaning this new earth is not going to contain any H2O. I think what he's meaning, um, is, is he's staying in context here, what have we seen happening with the sea? Well, let me just give you one example. Back in... 
chapter 13, verse 1, he says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems. So the, the sea is often pictured as like, um, uh, sometimes it represents the nations, pe- multitudes of peoples, but, but what's taking place there, what's rising out of the sea is rebellion. The beast coming against the Christ. So this, this may be a way of suggesting that there's no more rebellion. And Jesus uses that, um, that imagery too when he talks about the sea and the waves roaring, uh, in Matthew 24, I believe it is, uh, when he's talking about end time events. So, so there'd be no more of that kind of chaos. Uh, one author, um, noted this, and I, this, this is, I think, reasonable as well. The Jews were not a seafaring people, which that's just a fact. You know, they didn't have a navy and a big navy and all that kind of stuff. Um, they, they, what, what, they, what did happen? You know, they're right on the coast. They were often attacked from the sea, so so they didn't look at the sea as a, a necessarily a favorable thing, because um, that's where the enemy me would come from a lot of times, landing and attacking. And and again, they weren't a, a seafaring people. So maybe another way of uh, a way of communicating that as well that there, there's no more of that kind of threat. There's no more sea. In other words, there's going to be the kind of peace that we just read about in Isaiah, where there's there's no more of that kind of upheaval, no more of that kind of trouble in my holy mountain. But the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the child put his hand on the hole of an adder. And so forth. No more sea. No more sorrow. In fact, he says he will wipe away every tear. It's kind of funny. Uh, one of those things that's kind of comical sometimes. People talk about whether or not there are going to be tears in heaven. <laughs> well, um, I mean, in other words, sometimes people read this. He will wipe away every tear. and So that means no more crying. And sometimes people go um, to an extreme, I think, trying to take that literally. Uh, the idea is just no more sorrow. I mean, he's our delight is going to be in the Lord, and there's not going to be anything to hinder that, to suppress that. And uh, even if you're going to wipe away tears, there's got to be some to wipe away, doesn't there? So, um, the point, though, is no more sorrow. No more sea, no more sorrow, no more death. How good is that? Because he's conquered death. Once and for all, in the, the decisive victory we talked about a couple weeks ago at the cross, Jesus conquered death. And yet, Paul goes on to say later that death will be the last enemy put under his feet. It's interesting, isn't it? He defeated death at the cross two thousand in terms of time and space 2,000 years ago, but it still hasn't been finally put under His feet yet. So you and I, if we live long enough, have to face death unless Jesus returns before we get to that point. But after that point, no more death. No more sea, no more sorrow, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. No more pain. Glorious time. Because all things are made new. New creation. There's a new order. There's a new order without sin. 
And look, here's the, here's the highlight of it. Here's, here's where all the promise, uh, or the main promise, I guess you could say, of the Bible, here's where it comes to its fulfillment. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice, John says, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's how it started. That's how it started in the garden. And then that was disrupted because of sin. And so, through the rest of the Bible, we we keep having these promises and these events that foreshadow God once again dwelling with His people. Like we were talking about in Sunday school, you know, the, the... the, or just a few moments ago, I was talking about God's tabernacle in the midst of Israel. That was a foreshadowing of God once again dwelling in perfect uh, unity and harmony with His people. Well, this is where it has come to its fulfillment. Now, here's something interesting that we don't catch in the English translations, unless they're just ultra-literal. I don't think any of them are that we have here probably, but this word dwell is the word tabernacle. Behold, the tabernacle of God. Skene. It's a Greek word for tent or tabernacle. It's the same word that would, would be, have been used in the Greek to refer to the, the Old Testament tabernacle. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. So, you see what's happening here? There's a restoration. Once again, God's tabernacle, God's tent being pitched among His people. Except this time, it's not a type or, or, or a, a shadow, you know, something foreshadowing. This time, it's the real deal. God dwelling in the midst of His people. And He uses that word twice here as a noun and as a verb. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them. And they will be His people. That's what the old, one, at least one of the purposes behind the Old Testament uh, feast of Tabernacles that you've probably heard of. They, you know, they would come and put up little booths, little tents um, for a week that they would live in. And that was the whole idea there. It pictured them living in the very presence of God. Except here it's reversed. Instead of them coming and pitching their tent around God's temple, it, God is pitching His tent among His people. Now, we've, we've seen this before in the New Testament. And again, it's not so obvious reading it in the English, but the, the same terminology is used. And uh, if you don't know where it is, I'll tell you. It's John 1.14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The same Word. Translated dwelled or something like that, and you know, in our English translations, but it's the word for tent. He pitched his tent. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. In fact, it was prophesied that his name would be called Emmanuel, right? Which means God with us. God pitches his tent among his people. And Jesus literally did that. By taking on humanity. That is, that wasn't, that wasn't just a picture. That wasn't a mere picture. It was a, I would say it was a sort of foretaste. You know, Jesus came in the flesh and He walked in the flesh. 
with His disciples for roughly three and a half years or so, living with Him day in and day out, and, and uh, they, had, they were able to enjoy His presence. But then he left, and you know he said he said I've I've got to go, and I'm going to send the Comforter to be with you, and I'm I'll come back, I'm coming again. So so that was kind of a foretaste of what we will get to experience for eternity. But it wasn't a type because he really was God, and he really was dwelling among his people. So again, verse three: Behold, the dwelling place. Of God is with man, He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And you go a little further down to verse 6. And He says, He said to me, It is done. It is done. Now, I thought this was, this is a very common verb, but still I thought it was interesting that John, or that the Lord used it here. Um, when I first looked at that phrase, I thought, I wonder, I wonder if that's the same phrase, which is actually a word um, in the Greek, that Jesus used on the cross when He said, it is finished. Because in the English, it sure sounds the same. I mean, we, we say that, don't we? I'm done. It means I'm finished. <laughs> and so I looked it up, and it's not. So if you were getting excited about that, I'm sorry. But, um because you were thinking, oh man, that's cool, it's not work. No, but I still think it's cool, and I'll tell you why. Because it's the verb here for um, becoming, or coming to pass. And it's in the perfect tense, so, I mean, so you could say it this way, it, it, it came to pass. Now, when I saw that, I thought, now that's, that's interesting. What, what came to pass? What did he... What did he bring into being. Well, we, we just read part of it. Verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In other words, this promise that He's been promising all the way through Scripture, He has now brought it into the reality. He has now brought it into being. So He says in verse 6, It is done. That is, it is, it is brought to pass. It has become. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that is as if to say, did you ever doubt that it would? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who sees the end from the beginning. Of course my word comes to pass. It is done. There should have never been any doubt about that. Of course there wasn't with God. But we sometimes doubt. So we're getting assurance here. He's going to do what He promises to do. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen to what He says. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. He puts out a call in Isaiah 51, come. 55.1, I'm sorry. Isaiah 55.1, come. You who, you who are thirsty, come. Come to the waters and drink. Freely. No charge. Here it has come to pass. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, I will give this heritage or this inheritance. And listen, I will be his God and he will be my son. That's what's come to pass. 
All of those prophecies, all of those promises, all of those types, all of those foretastes that we encounter all the way throughout the Bible. And even when you get to the New Testament, even when you get over into the New Testament, there, there it all comes into to clear focus. But, but there's a big part of it that is still unrealized. It's not yet. Yes, thank God, yes, we, we have Jesus and we can say now that He is mine and I am His. And thank God, now we have the Holy Spirit. But remember, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what is the Holy Spirit is given to us as what? A down payment, right? A down payment, which, which means more to come. The, the final payment, the full payment, paid in full. So, even now, in the New Testament era where these promises and the reality, we know the reality is Jesus. And, for example, when the psalmist says in Psalm 16.11 that in His presence is fullness of joy, we know that all the realities of those kinds of promise are found in Christ. But there's still a large part of it that is not... Yet. That doesn't mean there's more than Jesus. I mean, there's nothing lacking in Jesus that we need. It's not Jesus plus. It's just that He hasn't brought us in to the fullness of the relationship with Him that we will know throughout eternity. Yet. Think of it this way. It's often put this way. Now... We know, we, you, you, I guess you could even say we see, but it's, but it's by faith. By faith. Peter says we love Him, though we've not seen Him. It's by faith. But there's coming a day, just like songs and poets have said, when faith will give way to sight. And John says, we shall see Him as He is. And we shall be like Him. So, this is it. This is when that comes to pass. God will dwell among His people. There is restoration. But this time it's better. Because we're not going back to the same situation in the Garden of Eden. Look, this time we're going into a relationship um, that that is so perfect that there's not even the potential for sin. Now, I don't fully understand. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I, I just know this is the case. God created the world. He created all everything in it. He created all things. Everything that is created, He created. But there was a potential for sin. And Adam and Eve sinned. But when we get to this point, there's not even a potential for sin. And there is a complete separation of the righteous and the wicked. Because here, righteousness rules. In fact, <clears throat> this is how he finishes out this, this little section here. Speaking of this separation, verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, as for the cowardly, the faithless, or that could be translated unfaithful, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, which we talked about last week. So, he's saying to the overcomers, to you who know Christ, who are in Christ, who hold on to Christ, you have this inheritance. I will be your God and you will be my son, enjoying all of the privileges of sonship. But for those outside of Christ, the destiny is the lake of fire. There will be a complete separation. There will not be, and we'll see this again as we move further into the chapter in also 22, there will not be any defilement in the new creation. This is a new order. All things are made new. And all the old things have passed away. Because God keeps His Word. This is a promise kept. Would you stand and we'll pray and dismiss. Father, again, we do thank You for the promise of eternity with You being reconciled to You in Christ Jesus. Thank You for granting faith and repentance and endurance. Father, um, help us. Our days here are few. Whether we live one more day or a hundred more years, in the time that we have remaining, Lord, help us to stay focused on You. Help us to live this life with eternity in view. Following the example of Paul, who continually stretched forward toward the mark for the prize. Lord, that we may glorify You in all that we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.